Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 87 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This episode is with Ghostlight Theatrical's artistic director, Beth Rass Berquist, and we talk about her new full-length play that's premiering tomorrow, April 22nd, at the Ballard Underground called Choristaya, which is a modern adaptation of the Oristaya. And this is a great interview digging deep into process, classical theater, how women are portrayed in classical theater, and how her adaptation shines light on that. And animals, strangely enough, pandas and cows and whatnot. Uh, please visit ghostlighttheatricals.org to get your tickets for Chorus Daya. And enjoy episode 87 with Beth Rass Berquist. Thanks, all. Well, I have a real badass in the room today. I have Beth Rass Berquist here. Hello! Hello! We first are going to do a uh, debrief of Seattle Fringe Festival. Congratulations on making that happen. Oh, thanks. Thanks. What, what were the perks for you of, of the festival? Um, well, we increased... I can't... I didn't... Um, I didn't, like, research how well we did on the Fringe Festival before I walked in and the numbers didn't stick in my head, but we more than doubled the number of audience members who came wow. between 2014 and then um, this year because we had, like, an 18-month gap, so that was, like, a huge highlight and one of our big goals. Um, we were super excited to have it uh, at the TPS spaces this year as well as on Capitol Hill, and we're... Um, discussing trying to figure out where we're going to be next year if we're going to spread into other neighborhoods as well if we're going to stay with capitol hill and tps but um we were excited that to kind of build community in that space and finally feel like we had a central lobby right on yeah well the shows the shows that i I saw dragon lady which was beyond like yeah i think i turned to i turned to my friend after seeing it i was like well sarah porkalov is just one theater so we, none of us have to do anything anymore. <laughs> like, it was just right. so well executed. And won Best of the Festival, right? It did, yeah. And um, we don't call it Best of. Oh, sorry. It's the Audience Choice. Audience, audience Choice. Audience Award. Um, but uh, because the audience liked it technically better than anything else based on the scores people gave on their voting cards. But, um, wow. yeah, so, yeah, that was great. That was great. I, saw, I, saw, I saw Uncle Siegel, which... I'm going to see for the third time when it flies up to Whidbey Island, uh, which is going to be fun. And then I had the chance to uh, tell a story in um, Unnecessary Sadness. So oh, nice. I had a full Saturday. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I only saw two shows, sadly, which were Oak Tree and Anna and the Sea, but I loved them both, and I was really excited to see them. So. It was so... I mean, is it one of the only festivals that's by lottery? Aren't a lot of them you have to do a proposal? Um, most fringe festivals are by lottery. Well, actually, I don't know enough about fringe festivals then. <laughs> yeah, ours because we curated those main stage shows were like kind of out of sync with fringe festivals around the country, but because that space is so big and that's another thing. If you hey, you can email me at bethrass at gmail dot com if you have suggestions about, um, hey, I know a person whose show would fill a 200-seat space next year because we're definitely looking for some more curated shows that, 
that could be successful in that big fancy space. Right on. Well, I love that. I love that it just makes it a democratic kind of process, right? You, yeah. You submit your, I want to do it, and we're literally pulling names out of a hat. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's exciting that way, too. I think it gives us this great variety of artists and this sort it gives opportunity as well. And we try and keep the price pretty reasonable. It's sort of us, like the, the artist entrance fee helps us pay for space, almost like dollar for dollar the artist entry entry fee covers the space for us for two weeks so oh my gosh ice on my lap there's ice um, the, the 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 joy of live podcasting i know God, right? are you good are I'm you good there's I, a little bit exciting. of like a puddle of a puddle? ice water water slash coffee here i'm gonna find but, some kleenex uh cool we're gonna do um, this i i don't want to cut this out either yes. because we're humans people totally we're, we're, it just makes me more of a badass probably that i just spilled ice all over my lap i'm sure so excited she dumped her drink that's right. That's right. Um, but anyway, we try and keep the cost really accessible. So we have, you know, like five groups paying for a space as opposed to the one group that would be paying for it, which right. really cuts it down so that basically anyone who wants to produce in the festival can. Um, I moved here a million years ago because of the old Seattle Fringe Festival, and that was my first experience as a producer. And it's important to me because of that that other people have the opportunity to like not break themselves producing their first show yeah. or you know experimenting with something new well congratulations Thanks. and thank you for all the hard work that you put in to make it happen sure sure so but you don't uh, really rest ever because you have <laughs> a play that you have adapted that is opening at ghostlight on april 22nd so tell me all about it and how it came to be Sure, I will. Um, so uh, my play is called Choristia, and it's an adaptation of Oristia, which is a three-part chronicling of the Trojan War. Um, I'm kind of a Greek theater geek, which is harder awesome. to say than I thought. Tongue um, twister, articulation exercise, actors take note. Ex- exactly. <laughs> Greek theater geek. <laughs> Before your next show. <laughs> uh, so... Um, Yeah, so the idea behind it basically is it's a retelling of the Trojan War um, told instead of through the characters' main stories, through the uh, sort of day-to-day existence of the chorus. So, Right on. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, seven women in it who are the chorus, uh, and their names are like chorus leader, chorus one, et cetera, through seven. Um, And then there's one straight white cis man who plays all of the characters in the Oristia. <laughs> and that's being played, he's being played by Cody Smith, who I just love, and I'm so excited to see what he's doing. And he's the only guy so in the whole cast. He's the only guy in the whole cast. Yeah, it's Fantastic. kind of, like, it's kind of a monster part, I realized, in, um, like, when we were casting it, uh, Stephen Stern and Jen Ross, who are directing, kept saying, are you sure you don't want it to be played by two guys? Are you sure? Are you sure? And I'm like, no... I know it's a lot, I know it's a lot, and I'll work with the dude we cast if it feels like too much, but it's really important that it's just one dude, because that's kind of like what the force of the patriarchy feels like (laughs) as a woman sometimes, and that's like my point. So, So he's kind of in control of everything that happens on like a grand national scale, and kind of without giving, getting like without any spoilers, I guess, although if you've read 
the Oristaya. <laughs> <laughs> you you kind of know what happens, sure. kind of. Um, but anyway, sort of moving down to this personal and specific level at the end. But he's mostly on TV, and he's you know King Agamemnon and the gods, and he also plays women and um, you know whoever else, Iphigenia, Clytemnestra, etc. And then the women are just these women who are like directly and indirectly affected by the effects, affected by the effects, um, that you works. know, whatever, that works. <laughs> uh, of the Trojan War. So it has this like indirect effect on their life, but then also at the same time, um, and this is the part I guess I kind of made up, uh, women in this mythical society are slowly being turned into animals. So, oh. um, so without, like, the gods are turning women into animals. And and part of it is, like, people are trying to figure out why are women being turned into animals? And, you know, like, am I going to be turned into an animal? And if so, what animal would I be? And is that, like, necessarily terrible? Um, it sort of starts with, like, in the first scene you hear that someone's cousin has been turned into a pig, like, a long time ago. And half the people don't believe them, and some of them are, like, it's definitely, like, sort of, a modern take, which is what Ghostlight does anyway, but it's modern language for sure. But so people are like, well, I'm an atheist. There are no gods. They can't be turning women into animals. You're ridiculous. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then moves to like kids teasing this girl on the playground for being too smart. And she, like she says, there are no gods. That's propaganda. And all of the other kids don't know the word propaganda. Because wow. they're kids. And so they start chanting, you're a panda, and she turns into a panda. And so, so it kind of spreads out oh, wow. from yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. What drew you to adapt this piece specifically? Um, well, I've always loved the Oristaya specifically as a trilogy. And in, um, I guess in writing this piece, I realized that Ephigenia is a completely different play. But like... Ephigenia, so before the, so, okay, so the Trojan War is fought over Helen. Helen's the most beautiful woman in the world, right? And she is either kidnapped or, um, or leaves with Paris. Right. Who, um, who lives in Troy, who I think is like the prince of Troy. Yeah. He, I just said I'm a geek about this and I'm not 100% on okay. that. But, um, that's the Trojan side though. So, uh, so Menelaus, who's not the king, but is the brother of King Agamemnon is like, we're going to fight a war with the Trojans and we're going to get her back because like she belongs to me and she can't leave. So they get their armada ready and the, the ships are all set to sail. And the gods say to Agamemnon, like, if you want the wind to blow, you have to kill your daughter. And then he does. And like, that's, that's Epigenia. Fuck, right? Wow. And um, I love that Greek tragedy. Speaking is, about the patriarchy, god damn it. I know, <laughs> right? Right? Well, the whole thing, like that whole, like just the setup for the Trojan War is all about the patriarchy. And then if you like read the Oristia, there's these choruses of women. So like, so anyway, so he kills her. They go off. They fight the Trojan War for 10 years. Like, all these dudes have all this sex all over Troy. And if you've read the Odyssey, all the way back from Troy. Right. Um, Agamemnon comes back, and his wife, Clytemnestra, the queen, is having an affair with Aegisthus. And um, and there's this prophet from Troy, Cassandra, who no one ever believes. She's like, don't go in the castle, Agamemnon. Your <laughs> wife is going to kill you. And he's like, I don't believe you. And so he goes in, she kills him, right? Right, right. So that's like... <laughs> 
So if Janaya, that's like part one, Agamemnon, that's part two. And just imagine in Korostaya, all of this is being done like off and on by Cody Smith. Part, part three is called the libation bearers. And meanwhile, there's in all of these, there are choruses of women who are commenting on the action. Like that's, that's again, sort of a their passive, point. A passive role, right? right? Yeah, they're totally passive and they're like, oh, it's so terrible for our king or, you know, whatever else. So the next one, the libation bearers, is um, sort of what happens next. So Agamemnon and Clytemnestra's son, Orestes, comes home. Electra, their daughter, is like, Jesus fucking Christ, mom killed dad. What are you going to do about it? You're the man. Orestes is like, ah, shit, I guess I have to kill mom. (laughs) So Orestes goes in and (laughs) kills Clytemnestra. I feel like this needs to be a web series of you describing... Great tragedies. Anyway, continue. Yeah, I'll totally do it. Um, so that's basically the whole of libation bearers. And the chorus are libation bearers who are like old women who are like bringing sacrifices to the grave of Agamemnon. So then in Act 3, which is called Orestes, Orestes is like being tortured by the chorus, also women, who are the Furies, which are like ancient goddesses oh, of yeah. wisdom, who are like, you can't kill your mom. We're going to get you. We're scary bat-like creatures, right? So, um, and then the gods come down and have a trial, and the male god is like, he had to kill his mom, and the female god, Athena, who doesn't have a mom, but that's beside the point to a certain extent. Didn't she, like, come out of Zeus's head? Yeah, she totally right. just came out of Zeus's head. But, <laughs> um, Athena's like, you can't kill your mom. And then, um, like, Apollo wins, and Orestes goes free, and they're like, well, thanks for your help, Furies. We're always going to respect your wisdom, but you're wrong this time. Stop tormenting Orestes. Get out of here. And that's it. So I've always, like, been fascinated by the role of women throughout this mythology. And not even, like, oh, I'm so angry about the sexism of Greeks, but just, like, this is a really interesting story that's, like, reliant on everyone taking advantage of and or ignoring women, like, or or killing women, like, all the fucking time. (laughs) Like, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And and within, like, the traditional cast, there's a lot... Well, the traditional, traditional cast, it's a lot of dudes with masks on. But if you were to do it now, the choruses would all be women, and, like, Clytemnestra would be played by a woman and whatever else. I don't know. It's, like, it's like almost a 50-50 cast. And so part of me really wanted to turn that on its head as well. I'm, like, I'm not really interested in writing... Well... I'm not interested in writing stories that are about men because that's not my lived experience. And, um, and because there are already enough stories, I feel like that are centered around men. I don't, as a, like, as a female identifying person, I don't have to write them. I'm writing this new play right now that I'm not even really ready to talk about where it doesn't even matter what anybody's fucking gender is, but we'll see where that goes later. As, so as a genderqueer actor, thank you, because that's what, that's what I'm hoping to start seeing on stage, which I haven't been seeing, is where, yeah, genderqueer characters. I'm excited for Eat Cake over at Annex. Yeah. I know, uh, Seth, they are so great at writing queer characters, and I'm really excited for that. But I think that's going to be the new renaissance, hopefully, in terms hopefully. of... Uh, but right on for you in that yeah. project that we're not talking about yet. Yeah, not yet, not yet. It must be... It's- what I love in your retelling of the story is that it's obvious that we 
we're all I'm not obligated, but there is reverence, right, for the ancient Greeks, for the theater, mm-hmm. like the first theater that ever happened, maybe after cave paintings ever, right. you know, right? This these stories that are told, and but then how do we make it relevant, right, in the 21st century? And so I love that you're not you're not attacking it. You're not saying this is bullshit, but so I want to put my you want to put your own artistic stamp in terms of flipping it on its head and making it relevant without saying fuck you ancient Greeks like how do we interpret this story how is this a story for now and new and in Seattle right yeah and that's I mean Ghost Light's mission is all about making classical stories relevant so that I've been doing that for almost my entire adult life so there is that but um but yeah definitely and with that I love Greeks like I said and I love them for their ability to be whatever the fuck you want. And this story is exciting to me because it's a way for me to talk about like like my lived experience while also playing with Greek theater. If awesome. that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So So from from the moment you get this idea, like it's time, Oristai, here we go, to having a first draft, what is that process like for you? Was that process like for you? Um well uh, that's a good question. What was it like? This one kind of took, usually I'm a pretty fast writer. Like I'm like, I have something to say. And like a couple weeks later I emerged yeah. from a cocoon and I'm like, I have said it. And now <laughs> I will take some time to refine it. But this, because like, and probably someone who's more of a, of a Greek enthusiast than I am even is going to be like, you're wrong. This actually happens in the worst diet. And that's fine. I don't really care that much. Um, but but I had always been attached to the story without, like, super researching it. But I felt like to write the play, I had to do a little bit more research. Sure. And I had to, like, for the character of the man, I had to stick to at least the main events that happen in the Oristaya. And for that reason, I had to, like, remember what they were specifically. So I spent some time on the internet and, like, in my college theater history books, making sure that yeah. I was remembering it right and I wasn't missing anything that was, like, critical um, so, and then Ghostlight's proposal process is that if you're going to do a new script, you have to have 10 pages done. So it was like, I guess, 2014 over the holidays, my work is closed, which is great. And yet my child's still in childcare, which is also kind of great. So sometimes, sometimes I love spending time with her though, but sometimes, uh, right, so, right. so, um, so I just took like, like probably four days of that to write the first 10 pages, which are like sort of the the scene setter in the coffee shop where they talk about the woman's cousin who's turned into a pig and then the playground scene where the girl's turned into a penguin panda, which is the second scene. So, um, and then I kind of moved from there and was like, I never have an idea of what exactly is going to happen like to the characters until I get there. So when I wrote the panda scene, I wasn't sure if it was going to be just like a story about this one woman who's turned into a panda or if it was going to be an epidemic, which it turns out it is. So that's, um, that's kind of how that process went, I think. And at some point I realized the next, I think the next character turns in is a, a breastfeeding mother who turns into a cow, which is probably like, I don't know, with, with a couple notable exceptions, most of the characters are all like within like, oh, I have felt like this before and definitely is like, um, 
a new mother, I definitely felt kind of like the cow character. Maybe not. I don't know what sure. it feels like to feel like an actual cow, but <laughs> but like the cow character all the time. Right. Um, and so so once she sort of happened, I was like, oh, I wonder if everyone in all of the women in this play eventually turn into animals over time, which kind of sets the stage for the Furies at the end yeah. without giving too much away. But that's like, Beautiful. so that's basically, that's how my process went. You let yourself More be surprised by yeah. where the play wants to go. Yeah, exactly. Or what the characters feel like, in this case, what the characters felt like they turned into. At what point do you bring the directors in on this project? Or were um, they, how did that marriage happen? Well, in this particular case, Jen Ross has directed almost all of my work. And she, to date, except like 1448, where you don't have any control. Sure. Um, and then, like, Rob, my husband, directed one in our backyard once. <laughs> uh, but um, other than that, um, so it, it felt like a no-brainer to ask her. Um, but I also... Uh, we Ghostlight wanted to work with Steven this year, and he is a more experienced stager than, and I don't think Jen will mind my saying this, than, than Jen is necessarily, and so we kind of brought him on uh, to co-direct with her based on, on that in terms of staging and in terms of wanting to work with him and really liking his work, so. Did you get to sit of, in on the auditions, or did you sort of let them um, have that? I sat in on some of the callbacks. Um, I come from a directing background first and foremost, although I'm less interested in doing that most of the time right now. But um, maybe because I have a two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so so I kind of feel like to a certain extent directors should have autonomy, but I was definitely in the room for callbacks and for casting. And it was important to me to have... Um, to have at least like part of the cast not be white because and when we were workshopping it and having readings and whatever else we made sure to invite actors of color to read as well to make sure I wasn't like if you're I'm not trying to speak to say everybody everybody but I want to make sure that I'm not like writing a play that's just straight up white feminism where everyone's like big deal that's your problem <laughs> you know and so part of casting um, it was important to me to have actors of color in the play as well. So I did sit in. Um, I'm so happy with the cast we have. Every single actor in the show was all three of our first choices for Congratulations. the role. Wow. Yeah, and none of them dropped out or anything. I hope they don't in the next two weeks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they will. But, um, yeah, I'm so excited that that's how it turned out. And, and they're great. They're doing great. This seems like a good so, opportunity to introduce us to your cast. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read a list so that I don't forget anybody. <laughs> so uh, should I just go down the list? Is yeah, that, please do. Okay, cool. So Christina Alexander is playing chorus leader. Um, by the way, a, a lot of these ladies have really similar names, coincidentally. So I'm going to try and enunciate to make sure you know they're separate Fantastic. People. All right. So Laura Lee Caudill, I think that's how you say her last name, is chorus two. Uh, Gabriella Aylman is chorus three. Lori Lee Hainer is chorus four. Laura Steele is chorus <laughs> five. LaCrista Borgers is chorus six. Trish, Trish Cosgrove 
is chorus seven, and Cody Smith is the man. He's the man. So he's the man. <laughs> Cody Smith is always the man. You heard it here first, Corey. Probably so have you even. have you been do you as a playwright, do you come to rehearsals every once in a while or do you sort of like to keep your distance until opening? Well, I was willing this is my first full length play as a playwright. Congratulations. So I just turned off your light with my That's toes. Okay. Again, live podcast, I guess. Wow. Everything's um, going wrong. No. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm ruining it. We're spilling things and turning off lights all over. Oh my god. Um, well, congratulations thanks. on your first yeah, for this work. It's exciting. Um, so I don't know what my process is with rehearsals, but Stephen and Jen uh, wanted me to be in once or twice a week, and my life is easier if it's once a week. Right. So that's what I've been doing. I've been there Mondays. So I watched like their first stumble through off book last week, which was a little bit terrifying but it wasn't like I always think when I'm directing and the playwright sits in I always think they're like my words my precious words but I only felt that a couple times <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't too bad at all they're pretty close have you been actually. I mean have there been any stories from uh the female cast members about I don't know how this play relates to their life or in ways that they've been marginalized and how maybe this is a way where they feel more power um you know, I don't, I got more from readings than I have from the cast sure. so far. And maybe that's, it might be because I'm not in every rehearsal or maybe we cast people who don't relate to it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but definitely during readings, I had people, um, people say that it did relate to their lives and especially the cow, which is interesting, especially the mom experience, but maybe that's universal or universal among like women who've had children in the last like 15 years or you know something like that um and then uh yeah and then I had um chorus seven specifically is written to be an older actress so 40s to 60s I think she's she's sort of written as a boomer so like 50s to 60s is better and I had women during readings thank me for writing a character who had substance who is their age right so that was cool. It's exciting. <laughs> but to a certain extent, it's pretty dark and in a way, like, like it's reassuring to me because most of it's like my lived experience in one way or another. If people are like, yes, I have felt that exact thing before. But if people are like, nope, that never happened to me, maybe that's better for society <laughs> like, right. in some ways. Right. So, so folks want to get... Take, when they get their tickets, not if, when they get their tickets, they're gonna, going to want to visit ghostlikethetricals.org. Uh, show runs April 22nd through May 7th. Check it out. Yes. What has this journey of founding Ghostlight Theatricals to now been for you? I want to, wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I just want to pick the brain of a female founding artistic director? Well, that's like a really big question. (laughs) Um, And I haven't thought about it before. But um, I guess when I founded it, I had this thought in my mind like it would eventually be my job, maybe. And I no longer think that Ghostlight will ever, like, be my day job. And that's fine. Um, at this point, I don't think I would want it to be my day job. I, I feel like I went through like a series of realizations 
um, about how like fringe theater works and like what you need and what you don't need and who you want to work with, like who you want in your company or who you want on your stage and like, um, and that is constantly, you know, changing and adjusting and whatever else as I meet different people <laughs> and whatever. But, um, yeah, I guess it's kind of been like that and it's kind of been this like, like ongoing delegation mm. as well. Like at first it was me and two other people and now there's like 15 other people. And I think to really make it successful, you have to have like at least 15 other people, right. you know, especially if you have a space as we do with the underground, like you have to have someone who's willing to run that space and to figure out rentals and whatever else, which I'm just not. So, but the person that I live with and I'm married to is, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, uh, that kind of thing or like realizations like when we realized that we wanted a space and we didn't want to be itinerant anymore and then like oh shit here's all the things we need to run the space and like sort of having a feel for how long people who aren't me might want to be company members or you know whatever else and then sure. figuring out well how if I want to help run the fringe festival how do I do that and still run ghost light and neither of those things pay me any money so how do I do that and have a day job? And then how do I do that and have a day job and run ghost light and have a child? And like, like all of those things are sort of constantly things I'm trying to figure out, I guess. Does that answer the question? That's, no, that's great. Yes. And thank you for your candor. I really appreciate yeah. it because I think, I don't know, I definitely put other theater artists on a pedestal and I forget that, oh, right, they have day jobs and families too. And <laughs> right. They're, you know they're as passionate and trying to put things together as I am too, which I made a very clunky hand gesture with, which you dear listeners won't be able to see, but please imagine me doing it. Yeah. You're lost. You you didn't see the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) What have been some of the highlights for you over how long has ghost night been going on? Uh, since 2002, the fall of 2002. So 14 like years. 14. This is our 13th season. Wow. 14, almost 14 years. Yeah. Again, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. It's been forever. I'm like old now. And you are. No. Dinosaurus. No. Like, um, what, di- I know, what are some of the, what are some of the highlights for you? The, um, gosh, what have been highlights? I think, like, almost every year, Battle of the Bards is a highlight, which is our fundraiser. So some of our listeners might not know. Set them up for what Great. that is. So every um, sort of late winter, like January, late January, early February, we have a fundraiser where uh, three different ensembles um, or playwright director teams create 20-minute pieces that could be expanded into full-length plays based on classical texts. And... Uh, our audience comes and votes at a dollar a vote for whichever they want to see in full in the next season. And so um, last year's winner was From Kings to Controllers. Right. Which, love that show. That was freaking amazing. Yeah, I was so happy with that show. And then uh, Danger Switch, correct? Is yeah. Going, is going to be big bad, so sort of a right. Red Riding Hood Imagine kind of thing. Right, yeah. And I'm really excited to see um, how they build from what they did in Battle of the Bards this year they won um and it's our biggest fundraiser it usually gets us like between a fifth and like 
like maybe a quarter of our annual operating budget, which is like wow. our, our budget's not enormous or anything, but still that's significant for, you know, that's like a whole bunch of drinks we don't have to sell at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so right on. Uh, if people, <laughs> for our non-drinking audiences, which are few, but, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, that's always like a super highlight is seeing, um, what people come up with and what wins and meeting new people through that is great. That's how we get lots of new actors and directors and playwrights that we want to work with, even if they don't win as well. So, um, yeah, so that's great. When I think back over like work we've done, um, gosh, I'm trying to think what, there's lots of shows I've been like really happy with over the years. Like I think shows I've like worked on that I was happy with. Like when I directed Tartuffe in 2007, mm-hmm. um, I was really proud of that show. I was really proud of um, The Scriker. Um, I did a gender reversed Hamlet a few years ago oh, wow. that was like really hard. It was really hard, but I was happy with how it how it turned out, and it was really interesting to me. I don't know. I guess artistically, I'm proud of their reactions to that, which were like like most women universally loved it and like 80% of men who saw it were either like I don't get it or like that was not a feasible thing to do like why would you cast all those characters as women and like no no woman could ever battle or whatever whatever it was really interesting it was really interesting and at the time I was really upset by it but then like Mm. having some distance from it I'm actually kind of happy that that was the reaction in some ways, and I wonder if that'll be the reaction to Coristaya. Um, other, and then um, other stuff, I'm trying to think other things, um, like when Rob directed Last Days of Judas Iscariot, which won a Footlight Award, that was really awesome. I was really proud of him and proud of producing that play. Um, like, pretty much anything like Rob and Emily Harvey do is they're just great they're both just yeah. such great directors and such great artists I loved Kings to Controllers I thought Stacy and Jenny did such a good job like yeah. I love Stacy's work as a playwright I was so happy that one and that we got to produce him and I just love working with Jenny Crooks in general so that was really great we have so many actors that have come through and so many actors who are company members that are like wonderful human beings and wonderful artists and whatever else all that's like (laughs) highlights you know and um and I'm really proud of us for being able to like be financially sustainable and run a space that's huge which is a lot of work and like a lot of unglamorous mundane theater work that like you don't even think about if you're not like I never thought about how hard it would be until we were doing it (laughs) so yeah I don't know I don't know. I'm just super egotistical, and I love everything. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. That's fantastic. It's, I mean, I feel like I, I'm saying congratulations a lot, but it's, I mean, it's amazing, everything that you've done. I hope that you get to, like, revel in that a little bit. Thanks. Thanks. I never think of it that way, so I appreciate <laughs> you saying Huge so. body of work. I yeah. love it. Uh, so what's, what's next for Ghostlight, looking towards... 
the future? Um, well, this is Cursed Eye is the last show in our season, and we take summers off, more Good. or less. Um, Emily and I are going to create like a late night or off night thing called hashtag Hamlet over the summer, which is yet what? another interpretation of Hamlet. And it's more her baby and I'm gonna like we have to sit down and talk about it and I'll help her write it and then she's gonna make it but it's basically like characters from Hamlet on Twitter it'll be very silly I love it at least I don't have to do any research for that (laughs) (laughs) and uh and then next season um Danger Switch's show is first Big Bad I think that'll open around Halloween because it will be a really good show for Halloween um and then I'm not sure what our order is for next year. Um, I know it's in my email somewhere, but I'm not going to look. But I know that we're doing um, The Curious Case. I'm going to get this title wrong. The Curious Case of the Watson Intelligence or something like that. Um, and we're doing uh, Ionesco's Macbeth. And then um, in the spring, we're going to do an, a new production um, in the same format as uh, the vaudeville piece that we did a few years ago, which Emily and Rob and I all directed together that had like three different plots and I think like 80 different sketches and they changed based on the night and whatever else. And there were like alcoholic root beer floats involved and a lot of a lot of silliness. Amazing. So, um yeah, so that's that's what's coming up in the next year. Um, it'll be the first year that I haven't like been attached to a major project for Ghostlight, which is kind of exciting. Um, I'm kind of looking ahead to the next season when um, when I might write something else. <laughs> just to leave it open, it's not the play that I'm writing right now um, because that one's just out of my head and not based on a classical piece of theater, but um, or literature. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. So I love that. Can you talk? I, I feel like compelled, not compelled. I'm interested to ask you a question about. It seems like you have some. You're someone who is able to set good boundaries in terms of work-life balance, and that's something I'm struggling with. I struggle with all the time, and I just want to know: Do you have a philosophy for it? Do you have any tips for other? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I think it's debatable whether or not I do that. (laughs) Um, For me, like, it's really important to spend time with my family. And it's, like, as if not more important than making theater, which was a switch. Like, once I had one, it was a huge switch for me to be like, you know what? I would rather, like, have a weekend with Rob than direct a show at that time, you know, every month of the year. Or once Spea was born, I would rather, you know, like spend an afternoon at least one day a week with her than always be in the theater. And that was like a really difficult realization. I guess part of it, um, maybe maybe it relates back to Chorus Daya in a way, uh, was when I was pregnant, I um, I couldn't drink, <laughs> and I realized how much of, like, the time I was spending in theater was, like, like, going to the same party and getting drunk with the same people, and that I'd been doing that at that point for, like, 11 years, which is a really long 
like if you think of 11 years of the same party, that's a really long time to be at the same party, right? <laughs> right. And so it's not that I don't like that par- party or that I never want to go to that party, but it's like, do I like need to do that every weekend or even like four times a year? Like, no. <laughs> and, and not only that, but like, if I don't, if I don't like sleep or eat, then I'm not like able to do shit, <laughs> you know, at my best capacity. Like I can probably still do it, but not right. in the way I want to. So it's kind of like, and, and like not working, not, not writing or acting in or directing a show next year, I think is sort of the next step in that of being like, can I go a year and not like be involved in this artistically necessarily. And is that like better for the company? If I can put my energy towards like management or leadership or whatever, it's probably, it means I can probably give a little bit more time to the fringe festival, which is good. Like it means I can give more time to maybe working artistically other places, which I haven't done recently other than like 1448, which is not a major time commitment. (laughs) So by nature, so I think it's important to acknowledge, I mean, just as <clears throat> you were saying that a lot of your artistic life was as a director, mm-hmm. and I think it's important for us, just as we evolve as humans, we evolve as artists, and we need different kinds of stimulation or expression, and uh, it's okay to push the brakes a little bit and say, what, I think we go on autopilot so much as theater artists, like, we need to know what that next show is, uh, and that downtime is just as important to to sort of reassess what stories we want to be a part of telling. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I also feel like just writing has given me like a better boundary than directing was because as a writer, um, like as a director, you have this like weird global view, right? I don't yeah. Know if you've directed yeah. before, but yes. yep. where like sometimes you're maybe the only person who sees how all the parts are or not functioning. And it's not like super, if you've done both, I think for me, it's not super different from being a parent and the way you, I've been a preschool teacher before and there's definitely parallel. Right. Right. (laughs) It's like teaching too. Like it's, it's a lot. And I'm not trying to say actors or children because I don't think that at all, but it's sort of like, like the way when you're directing, you're constantly like looking around the room and saying, you know, what, what might, what's the pitfall here? What's like dangerous, you know, and not dangerous in like, let's take a great artistic risk, but dangerous in like, you might get electrocuted. Like that kind of thing is really similar to parenting. And if I'm doing that in my home, which I am, then I feel like I can't do that for other people in the same way to yeah, tell a story. Like I mean, again, not like any actors to children, but it, it is a group of people that have entrusted you with their well-being. Right. 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 With their safety artistically. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm about to go into uh, directing uh, the flick in May, and so I'm sort of, I, I usually direct once a year, and so mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, I have to put on the director hat that's a different set of skills and yeah it's trying to avoid car crashes and and be a therapist and um you know <laughs> right. it's just there's so, right. it's so much to hold but i love it 
Right. It's a lot of different, you never, and improv, I say that I hate improv in terms of, it's not that I hate improv, it was, I was part of, in middle school we had a group called the Hysterical Society. Yeah, And we did did comedy sports and improv (laughs) and all that. And I remember they brought in, like, a professional improv dude uh, who, like, completely shut down my choices in a scene, and I just never wanted to do it in a formal improv structure after that, like, being 11 or 12. why would you? But on the other side of that, like... I feel so much of directing... I mean, so much of directing is casting. Yes, there's that old adage, but uh, so much of it is improv. Like, just mm-hmm. coming to rehearsal that night and, what? okay, we're going to block this scene, but someone, okay, they, they need to not go in that direction right now. Okay, I'm going to completely change my rehearsal plan and do this other thing without letting any of the actors know, okay, and we're going. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. the inner monologue of directors, wow. Yeah, it's intense. It can be really intense. I also... Now that I'm thinking about, like, artistic process, I feel like my, or, like, artistic life, like, my artistic life has been this, like, like, paring down, paring down, paring down, the way you tell a story. And so, like, I started as an actor, like, I think lots of people did, like, Mm -hmm. in high school and um, in college, and then realized, like, and that was maybe, like, a uh, ballooning out of it where I was like oh you know it'd be better is being a director and then but then I had this like really intense like preparation to be a director where I'd have like a diagram of the set and pennies with the characters names written on tape on the pennies and I'd make <laughs> these like and I'd draw circles around them on these diagrams and put them between each page of the script and I'd be like that will be a beautiful stage picture and sort of like this realizing like scaling back of like you know what that is not like working with live people, right. <laughs> like yeah. you know. And then this, and and sort of teaching. I was a teaching artist for a long time, and sort of looking at teaching and being like, "Wow, when I'm teaching, I'm totally spontaneous, and I'm listening to the room, and reacting and making choices based on like what these." Again, not to compare actors to kids. This is terrible. Like someone's gonna walk away from this. I'm an actor. I, like, I mean, I get it. I get it. I, I and I'm an actor sometimes. sometimes as an actor, too, I. But, I do behave as a child. I will say it's, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. Not all the time. Like, I mean, if someone's listening to this who wants to work with me, I'm perfect and I'm never horrible. But Of course, just of course. Just pushing that, that, I mean, there, mm, I'm working on both sides of it, like being an actor and like. There's like a solipsism in being an actor that yeah. is not, that is maybe similar to like the, the personal view you have as a kid that you yeah. learn to let go of as an adult. Yeah. And I'm totally solipsistic as an actor. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, my toe kind of hurts. Is that too much for rehearsal? <laughs> like, like, that yeah. kind of thing. Or, like, is that going to totally throw my scene? Or, yeah. like, oh, yeah. my God, I missed half a line. Did I fuck everybody else up? It's, ru- it's like, ruined because of me. And there's, like, you carry that weight as an actor. Yes. And that's kind of similar, I think, to the weight that kids sometimes, yeah. like, or that, that like, yeah. lens yeah. of being a kid. Yeah. But yeah, but like, sort of from that, like, scaling back and being like, oh, I want to play in rehearsal. It's called, yeah. like, it's about play, it's called a play, whatever else to, and then being like, oh, well, I'm like, at this place where I want to play in rehearsal, but I kind of want to play with stories. <laughs> and I want to do it without worrying too much about people right now so and that's where I am like as a writer I guess I love it well we're kind of winding down our time together I was wondering um if you might take us out with uh one of your favorite lines from the play or a line 
that you oh want to gosh. share? Oh my gosh. Well, I don't, <laughs> I just, I don't know if I have like a memorized favorite line, even though I wrote it. That's, um, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, not from I this show. From something from, I just, I'm doing this thing lately where I like to leave, leave the listeners with a line from something. So is there something class, you know? from Shakespeare or something else like what oh my what gosh we can we can you can you can crack out the cell phone I just want to May, leave, yeah maybe leave with a little taste of classical Let's theater see. to send our Let's listeners see. on their day well maybe I can like I just so just so you know listeners I'm like opening the play in google docs right now so I this love this recent, exciting everyone um, Corstaya's right close to the top as I was just <laughs> editing it. Um, based on some notes from rehearsal. Uh, let's see. Let's, let's see what, um, we'll do, we'll do. The scrolling is getting more furious. Oh my gosh. Yeah, We're almost really there. Is. We're almost there. We're <laughs> almost there. All right. I'm going to do a Dear Abby letter. From the first scene, of course, Daya, that um, that C seven has C seven played by the amazing Trish Cosgrove, who you're all going to want to see. Um, Dear Abby, I don't usually write columns, write to columns like this, or at all. I'm a prophet, so I can already tell what you're going to say, <laughs> but I just want to hear you say it. If a certain royal someone wants the wind to blow, he has to kill a princess, his daughter, in fact. Should I tell him? Yours, I already know you're going to say yes, and I'm just a siphon for messages from the gods. We'll just we'll go with that as a Beautiful. teaser. I love it. Love it. Thank you so much for coming on and talking theater and folks go see Chorus Daya. Yeah, come see it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. <laughs>